One of my favorite billboards along the tri-state was one that featured my own hometown. In the uh, letters on top, it said, how do you Sheboygan, as if the city was a verb. And then the picture was of someone surfing. This is like a magazine uh, version of the ad, I think. Now, this advertising campaign may fool some people, but it does not fool someone like me, who spent nearly every day of 18 summers on the Lake Michigan beach, where the picture of this surfer was supposedly taken. (laughs) Now, I'd be lying if I said I have never seen someone surfing there. I can remember seeing people out there during the late autumn storms when it's 40 degrees out and it's raining sideways and the surf is up a little bit. But on a beautiful summer day like today, never. Living in Sheboygan is about skipping school to hunt deer. It's about mowing your lawn at least five times every week. And it's about going cow tipping after basketball games, but it is most certainly not about surfing. Mostly, I think, because on a normal day, the waves simply aren't big enough. And I remember having a similar reaction when I visited Israel and I saw the Sea of Galilee for the first time, and I thought back to the Bible passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. And I thought, give me a break. There's no waves on this lake for Jesus to calm. I can see straight across to the other side. But since seeing the Sea of Galilee a few years ago, I've learned that I'm really an ignorant landlubber when it comes to understanding how storms form on freshwater lakes. I saw a a great dive detective's documentary on the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and they take you to a wave simulator up in Canada. I think it's in Nova Scotia. And they can plug into the computer all the meteorological data from November 10th, 1975, and you can get a feel for what it would have been like to be tossing and turning aboard that ship before it sank, with the cold Arctic air coming down toward the south and colliding with the warm air from the Gulf of Mexico to create the greatest storm on Lake Superior in 30 years, with 80-mile-an-hour sustained winds gusting up to 96 The waves are uh, 30 feet high. They're like wrecking balls against the side of the ship. But those were just the average waves. It's likely that the ship was destroyed by a rogue wave, 50-plus feet high, the kind of wave that was once believed to be simply a sailor's myth, but now we know as a statistical reality, that if you have enough waves sort of happening at the same time, eventually two of them will coincide at the exact same moment and sort of join forces. And so, shortly after 7 p.m. on that November evening, the hull of the Edmund Fitzgerald snapped in two like a bone. Some say it took only 10 seconds, just like that. It was gone to the bottom of the sea. There was no time for a mayday call. The largest boat on fresh water, two city blocks long, eight stories high, 500 feet falling to the bottom of the lake. And today, it's still lying there in two different pieces, a couple hundred feet apart from each other. And you can go see it yourself if you're willing to fork over the million bucks you'll be fined for diving at the site. And on the Sea of Galilee, you have the same kind of effect, although obviously on a smaller scale. The lake sits almost 700 feet below sea level. So you can imagine that the air at the surface is normally quite warm. 
But next to it are all these mountains well above sea level. It's the area that we would call uh, the Golan Heights today. And you can see the mountains are carved out by all of these ravines. So the cool mountain air sometimes rushes down these ravines and it collides with the warm air below and it creates an instant storm that's trapped right over the lake. And this is apparently what happens to Jesus and the disciples. They've climbed into their boat and they're beginning their five-mile trek across the lake. And it could very well at first have been a very beautiful night with the stars just starting to come out. If you've been to Galilee, you know that even today there's not a whole lot of artificial light around the shores of the lake. But what light there is, it just seems to flicker very idyllically off of the surface. It can be a wonderfully peaceful experience to be out there late in the evening on the lake. But on this particular night, the stars are darkened and all of a sudden they find themselves in the middle of one of these instant squalls. And I want to read for us how Luke describes the event. This is Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. He says this, One day Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, if you've been with us throughout the summer, you know that in Luke chapter 8, Jesus has been doing a lot of talking. He tells this long parable, the parable of the sower, then he goes on to explain it, and then we have several short kind of proverbial sayings. But then here, all of a sudden, with this paragraph, it's all action, very little talking. And in the midst of this action, we see two paradoxes or ironies develop. And I'd like to look at both of them with you this morning. The first concerns Jesus, and the second concerns the disciples. First, we see Jesus, ironically, as the exhausted creator of the universe, When we think of Jesus today, it doesn't surprise any of us that he has a large audience following him around. He's a great teacher. He's traveling from place to place. Everybody's heard of him, not to mention all the healings he's doing. If he came here to Lake County, I imagine he'd have no trouble filling this sanctuary or even something much bigger, Ravinia, whatever the biggest venue is here. But keep in mind that in the villages at the time around the Sea of Galilee, they maybe have... 50 or 100 people each. It's just really a collection of a few families. And so on a normal Sabbath day, a rabbi might have an audience of 20 or 30 people to listen to his scripture reading that day. But Jesus, of course, is no ordinary town rabbi. He has thousands of people following him around. And it's hot out. He's traveling from place to place. He's preaching these long, extended discourses. He must have been in amazing physical shape. But even so, at this point, when we find him, he's absolutely exhausted. Sometimes we think of Jesus as if he's Superman, but that's obviously not the case. 
the pressure of the demand for his time wears him out. And the only way he can get away from all these people is to head out onto the lake for a few hours. So at first, the scene seems very routine. Jesus is a little bit like the guy who sits next to you on the plane. He's been on a long conference call all morning, but now he's absolutely determined to get a little bit of rest before his next meeting. So he has his neck pillow and maybe that sleep mask. And before the stewardess is even done explaining how to fasten your safety belts, he's already passed out, sound asleep. This is Jesus, tired, worn out. He's so exhausted he can sleep in this uncomfortable wooden boat. He's not the kind of guy you would think who could moments later stand up and make demands of the wind and the waves. I'm not sure if you've ever tried to go toe-to-toe with uh, really strong winds or really big waves, even when you're at the peak of your physical strength. I remember we were visiting my brother-in-law down in Southern California a few years ago during spring break, and we were staying in Laguna Beach. And from our rental, I could see the surfers out on the water every day. And it, was, it just looked so inviting to me. And so by the end of the week, I said, I can't take it anymore. I have to go out there and catch some of these big waves myself. Now, when I got down to the beach, I realized there was an important difference between me and everybody else in the water, other than the fact that they knew how to surf and I didn't. I was just planning to lie down and ride the waves in. But I noticed that while I was wearing my swim trunks and a t-shirt, everybody else had on a wetsuit, and for good reason. It was the middle of March, and the water at that point was still pretty unbearable. But of course, being from Wisconsin, I have a little bit of experience swimming in cold water, and so I know there are two ways to do it. You can just jump in and get it all over with at once, but then you have to deal with that kind of initial moment of shock where you're not able to breathe for a couple seconds, and I don't like that feeling. So what I chose to do was the second strategy, which is to slowly numb your body, first your ankles and then your knees and your waist and your chest, and then finally all the way way under. Imagine the whole routine took me 20 or 30 minutes or so to slowly inching my way in deeper and deeper. But I was finally ready to go, and I swam out, to beyond where the waves were breaking, and I waited for the biggest one that I could see coming in the horizon. And just as the wave was reaching me, I started paddling toward the beach. But unfortunately, I caught the wave a little bit too far in front of the break, and so it sucked me under for a few seconds and spit me back out on the backside of the wave. I lost my sunglasses permanently to the bottom of the ocean. I swallowed a bunch of salt water and seaweed and sand. And by the time I finally resurfaced, I was so shaken up that I had to retreat immediately and head back to the beach after I had spent all that time numbing my whole body. So it was a little bit disappointing. But at the same time, it's an amazing experience to be overwhelmed by the sheer power of that water. I mean, I'm a pretty big guy, and I can swim, but to think, if I catch the wave just one foot on the wrong side of the break, I'm rendered completely helpless. And that wave was just one of thousands of waves that were crashing onto the beach at Laguna that day. 
But even if you harnessed the power of all of those waves, that would still just be an infinitesimal drop in the bucket of the energy of the whole universe. Stephen Hawking, the brilliant physicist, says that our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. So keep in mind that at the speed of light, you could travel around the Earth's surface seven and a half times in one second. So like that. So if my calculations are correct, that means that in the time it would take you from, to travel from one end of our universe, or one end of our galaxy to the other, you could do something like 236 trillion laps around the Earth at the speed of light. But that's just our galaxy. According to Hawking, there are some 100 million galaxies like ours. So if you multiply 100,000 light years times 100 million galaxies, well then, that's a long way to travel. It's basically meaningless to us. It's like the national debt. It's, It's impossible to comprehend what the number even means. Now Luke, of course, doesn't know anything about the 100 million galaxies. But the question he raises here about Jesus still applies to us today and to our knowledge of astrophysics. And that is, does Jesus stand inside of all these galaxies or does he stand outside of them? I mean, obviously, physically in this story, he's inside, he's in the boat, right? But in terms of his authority, in terms of the sort of hierarchy of reality, does Jesus answer to the laws of the universe Or does the universe answer to him? And it's obvious what Luke is suggesting, isn't it? It's why the disciples are so astonished by what they see. Because in the Old Testament, they know only God has control of the seas. Psalm 107, the famous mariner's psalm, says this. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. So what God used to do, Jesus now does also. So the paragraph here is a real challenge for those of us who see Jesus as a sage or a great teacher, but as nothing more. Because the same Jesus who is absolutely wiped out in the boat is at the same time able to completely wipe out a storm. And you immediately think, you can't have it both ways. Either one is true or the other, but certainly not both. It's a bit like, if you've ever seen that show, Undercover Boss. I've seen a couple of episodes, and these CEOs disguise themselves as entry-level workers for a few days. But when you see them, or at least when I see them, I think, you're not really fooling anybody. I mean, you may be a good CEO, I have no idea, but clearly you're incapable of making curly fries or working the drive through window. The whole exercise just seems very awkward. You can't be both at the same time. But when it comes to Jesus, our entire hope, our hope for eternity, our hope for finding meaning in our lives, our hope for having some purpose for getting out of bed tomorrow morning, it all rides on the paradox in this paragraph. Jesus is wiped out, but he wipes out the storm. If Jesus is not physically exhausted after everything he's been through, then he's not truly human. And if he's not human, how can he die in the place of a sinful human 
like me or like you. But on the other hand, if Jesus cannot rebuke the winds and the waves, then he's not truly God, or at least he's not much of a God. He's just another contingent being who answers to the so-called laws of nature, just like you and I do. And if he's not truly God, then he's not the perfect, unblemished sacrifice that our redemption demands. So it's a beautiful harmony here in these four verses. The one zonked out in the boat knows your heart rate and your body temperature and your thoughts and your dreams. The one who essentially can't stay awake until the plane is off the runway is the creator of a hundred million galaxies and of every atom and black hole. If your Jesus is anything less than that Jesus, then it's a different Jesus than the one that Luke wants us to encounter. He wants us to ask, is it possible that a God exists who creates and governs all the water molecules in the waves and all the stars and all the galaxies? Is that possible? And if so, is it possible that he's the one sleeping in the boat? Well, if you're not sure what the answer is, then you can at least take heart knowing that the disciples have spent a considerable amount of time with Jesus by this point, and they're still asking the question. But it won't be long before they start coming to terms with what the evidence demands. And in particular, if you fast forward to the next chapter, you see Peter, for the first time, he answers Jesus' question. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter is able to confess, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So there's no doubt that the big question about Jesus, who is Jesus, who is this man, that's the main thrust of these four verses. But before we're done, I just want to briefly ask a question about ourselves, too. And we see that through the lens of the disciples and through a second irony. The first irony is that Jesus is worn out, but he commands nature. And the second is that a boat full of professional fishermen have to take advice from the son of a carpenter on how to navigate a storm. Let me read uh, these middle verses again. He says, A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples, who do this for a living, went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. So it's a bit of an echo if you think back to chapter 5 where the disciples there have to take advice from Jesus on how and when to catch fish. Here they have to take his advice on keeping their boat afloat in the storm. And the point is the same, I think, in both instances. And that is our own expertise is only going to take us so far. I mean, we think Jesus has his areas of expertise, and I'm good at some other things, but very rarely do they collide at any point. We think Jesus knows a lot about running a Sunday school class or a congregational prayer meeting or maybe a potluck dinner a couple times a year, but surely Jesus doesn't know anything about sailing or going out on a sales call or investment banking or running a small business or any of those things. But we all come to situations where we're in way over our heads, even in our individual areas of expertise, where life just seems to be spiraling out of control. The disciples have sailed and rowed on this lake 
for years, so they're not ignorant about the weather conditions like I obviously am. But here, they're quite convinced that they're going to drown. And so the picture is certainly not of them sort of politely tapping Jesus on the shoulder. Oh, we're so sorry to bother you, Jesus. Would you mind taking a break from your nap for just a moment and helping us out here, and then you can go right back to sleep? It's not like that at all. You'll notice that if you read the same story in the other Gospels, apparently different disciples are all shouting different things at the same time. Here in Luke, it's a master, master, but elsewhere it's teacher, teacher, or Lord, Lord. Don't you care that we're all going to die? That's the way that Mark puts it. But instead of answering that question, in typical Jesus fashion, he asks them a question instead. And he asks, where is your faith? So the storm doesn't disturb Jesus, but the disciples' lack of faith does. And at first it seems a little bit unfair. I mean, give them a break. The ship is going down and Jesus is sleeping. Of course they're going to be upset. At least you could do is help them bail water. So exactly what is it that they do wrong? I mean, turning to Jesus to help for his help, that was the right thing to do, right? I mean, when we're in trouble, turning things over to God, that's our best strategy. But the problem, I think, is with what they say. They say, we are going to drown. That's their error. Whatever faith they do have clearly doesn't function in the midst of pressure. They don't recognize that Jesus is in control even in the face of disaster. So I want to close this morning by asking, why can we trust Jesus? And this, I think, applies to physical dangers like the disciples are facing, obviously, but also to other kinds of storms in our lives, metaphorically speaking. Broken relationships, a health crisis, loss of jobs, any storm where we're tempted to think, I am never going to make it. I've totally lost control here. I'm doomed. So why can we trust? First, Jesus' power shows that he can be trusted. If Jesus really stands outside of a hundred million galaxies as their creator, as their governor, as the ruler of the cosmos, then it would stand to reason that he is more powerful than any of us could ever comprehend, which means that his power is greater than our needs. And whatever crisis or storm may seem unbearable in your life, it is most certainly not unbearable to the one who can rebuke the winds and the waves. Jesus' power must be greater than our greatest need. Second, why can we trust Jesus? We can trust him because deliverance happens through the storm. Our natural tendency is to think that if I am in crisis, that must be evidence that God cannot be trusted. Gordon Lightfoot sings, Does anyone know where the love of God goes? when the waves turn the minutes to hours. But it's clear from these verses that at least much of the time, deliverance happens through storms rather than in the absence of storms. And so when Jesus says, where is your faith? The implication is not that if you had more faith, the storm never would have happened in the first place. If you just had more faith, everything would always go your way and the sun would always be shining. If you had more faith, you would never experience 
your health crisis or the death in your family or whatever the storm in your life may be. The point is to show that through faith in Jesus, whatever the storm is, it can ultimately be overcome because there is no enemy too great for Jesus. And that doesn't mean that in every context there's going to be a happy ending. Storms do kill people. Winds and waves are not always calmed. I think uh, back to my high school girlfriend who ended up ironically marrying a tall pastor named Nathan, who was not me, uh, a youth pastor up in Minnesota. And a few years into their marriage, he, this Nathan, was leading a youth retreat, and they were up on some one of those 10,000 lakes up there, swimming off of a pontoon boat in an inland lake. And he saw one of his students struggling in the water. So he dove in off of the boat under the water and was able to bring the flailing and gasping student back up safely to the surface. But he himself never came back up. He had a wife and four young kids at home, and shortly before he died, he wrote this prophetically in his blog. He said, Can you believe that God is being good to you even when you don't feel his nearness? It may be the hardest steps of faith you take as you seem to walk all alone through the valley of death that keeps stretching on and on. But if you trust that God loves you and that he never leaves you, salvation is yours. And I imagine that's how the disciples are feeling in this scene and probably how many of us sometimes feel, that we're walking alone through this valley of death, and it just goes on and on and on. But the faith that Jesus is calling us to here is not simply a faith that he would help us out in a pinch or he would get us out of a jam, but it's faith in Jesus that if he is truly the promised Messiah, if he is the ruler of millions of galaxies, then it would be ridiculous to think that an accidental storm like this could do us in. Because, of course, storms in our lives could never be accidental in that sense. As if Jesus was taking a snooze and he woke up surprised to see that your marriage was in trouble or that your job was in trouble or something like that. God's care never takes a break, even when it leads into rough waters. He's aware of whatever storms we are going through, and he still calls us to trust in him completely because of his power, which is greater than our greatest need, and because, for whatever reason, in his wisdom, he often chooses to save us through storms rather than by avoiding them. Would you pray with me? God, we do pray that you would empower us to trust you in this kind of powerful way, that even when we encounter storms and crises in our lives, that it would not be to us a testimony of your absence, but it would be a testimony of your presence and of uh, the strengthening faith that you are calling us to. We thank you for the power that you exhibit, uh, not only in this instance here with the disciples, but the power that you've exhibited in many of our lives uh, through healing of uh, physical uh, ailments, through healing of relationships. And we pray that those uh, those in need of healing, those in need of deliverance today would take 
heart and take hope from this message uh, we find in this gospel that you are powerful and you are sufficient to bring us through the storm. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.